I'll start us with Jeremiah chapter 4, all 31 verses. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet through the land. Cry aloud and say, Assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion. Flee for safety. Stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. For this put on sackcloth, lament and wail, for this fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. In that day, declares the Lord, courage shall fail both king and officials. The priests shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, It shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. At the time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, A hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil, that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem, besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field are they against her all around because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom, and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish, they know me not. They're stupid children, they have no understanding. They're wise in doing evil, but how to do good they know not. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. For this the earth shall mourn, 
and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. At the noise of horsemen and archer, every city takes to flight. They enter thickets, they climb among rocks. All the cities are forsaken, and no man dwells in them. And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you, they seek your life. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands, woe is me, I am fainting before murderers. I'll be reading from John 3, verses 1 to 8. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Lord, thank you for your love and faithfulness that sees us through all things. That whatever things we bring into our lives, whatever changes we make for good or bad, we are, we are kind of a fickle lot as created people, but you are faithful to the last. We thank you that no matter what comes, you are who you are, and you are who you've said you are. And we pray that as we read this story of impending doom for Israel this morning, you would give us wisdom and insight to see you for who you are, who you've called us to be, to understand your love and faithfulness and your desire for redemption. Lord, I pray that through your spirit that you would lead and guide and enlighten us this morning and that you would give us clarity and wisdom as we go forward from here together. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, it's kind of funny, kind of funny, the dumb stuff that we do when we're younger, right? It's less funny the dumb stuff that we do when we're older. And why is that? Well, it's because by the time we've been around the sun a few times, we figure we should know better than to make the dumb mistakes, right? It's funny when kids dump the whole gallon of milk on the ground because they can't figure out how to pour it into a cup, right? It's funny. We laugh at it on America's Funniest Home Videos, all these things. It's less funny if it's your wife. I'm not saying Jen has done such a thing, but... When I was in college, nearly half my life ago now, 
which is kind of terrifying because I think I'm 20 years old in my head for the rest of my life, I think. It's where I'm stuck. Anyways, I was in college and I lived in the dorms at Karenport for four years while I was there. And in my time there, I met some of the most brilliant guys that I've ever known in my life that I've stayed in touch with to this day. I've also met some guys there who'd lose a game of tic-tac-toe to a wooden pole. So I learned some of life's great lessons in the course of my four years there living in the dorm. One of them happened on a night, like many other nights, where I got a little hungry around 11 p.m. midnight, and so I went to make myself a pot of craft dinner, right? That's like one of the few options. Nothing says good night's sleep like eating an entire pot of craft dinner at one in the morning, right? But there I was, I had boiled my water, had my noodles, and I was walking down the hallway to strain them into the bathroom sink, because that's what you do when you live in dorms. It's terrible. But the power went out as I was walking down the hallway with my pot of boiling water. Well, what happens when the power's out? You can't see, right? Total pitch black. And some gay came flying around the corner and ran smack into me and my pot of boiling water. So I got a burned foot for my work that night, and the lesson was learned. Kids, never walk down a dark hallway with a pot filled like boiling water, because somebody might run into you and ruin your noodles. <laughs> you might get a burned foot too, but the noodles were ruined. There's times in life that we look at others, and even ourselves in hindsight, and think, you should have known better. Right? Looking at Israel in chapter 4 here this morning of Jeremiah, things were a lot worse for them than just a pot of ruined noodles. Everything was coming undone in Israel. There was drought, there was famine, there was disease, there was Babylonian and Assyrian raiders from all sides, their kings were failing, their prophets and their priests had no idea what to do. They were the people of Israel. This wasn't supposed to happen to them. And here we enter Jeremiah and his words of woe to the nation of Israel. So what's going on when it's all going wrong? It's kind of funny, not funny, where Jeremiah takes things as they were all crying out in misery from fear and suffering because he calls them to repentance. He offers them hope, and then he looks them square in the eyes and he says, you should have known better. Because you see, none of this should have been surprising to Israel at all, what was going on. If you look back to the way that they renewed the covenant with God on the doorstep of the promised land a few generations before in Deuteronomy chapters 28 to 32, you see what's known colloquially as the blessings and the curses. It was God's set of promises to Israel as to what would follow from their faithfulness or their faithlessness, as it were. They read it all together as a nation. They pronounced it all together over themselves and made the promises and committed to all of it before God. Now, back in those same college days that I was mentioning before, I took two classes on the major prophets and the minor prophets with a guy named Ken Ginter. Some of you might have coffee mugs that he's made for you over the years. They're kind of fancy. Now, I kind of guess I expected taking these courses, it would be kind of a matter of, what do you make of this mess? Because if we just read through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, some of these books, 
Like, they don't make sense at all, man, unless you know where they're coming from. And I expected to take a couple of courses, and then I would know what these prophets were talking about. And instead, we basically spent two semesters making correlations and cliff notes between the covenant prophecies in Deuteronomy and the prophet books that we were reading. It was endless, tedious cross-reference notes and papers to be written, and it was at times absolutely mind-numbing work. You can see, I just, time and time, I had chapters and chapters just noted off Deuteronomy 28.52, Deuteronomy 28.29, just referencing back and forth. Because the reality is, when often we heard the word prophet, what kind of thing do we think that a prophet does? We almost think of them almost interchangeably as like fortune tellers, right? They tell the future of what was going to come. But more often than not, that's not really the job of the prophet. The job of the prophet was to see what was going on with perspective and speak back to the people what they had committed to and what they had promised to God with. The prophet was the sober second thought for the nation of Israel that was telling them what was actually going on. And as we would go through these books, every time that Ken would get up in front of the class and start reading out loud and correlating in class, he'd get choked up with a tear in his eye talking about all of it. And at the time, I thought, this is just kind of old man problems, right? They get a little bit kind of wistful in their old age, get a little tear in their eye. It wasn't until later on in life that I got it. And I started being the one... <laughs> Because it's not just that Israel should have known better or the matter of what's going on when it's all going wrong. It's that God's faithfulness to his word, whether he liked it or not, and his faithfulness to his people despite their infidelity in the midst of all of it. So as we go through these promises of calamity for Israel that we're looking at in Jeremiah chapter 4 this morning, I'm going to draw our attention back to some parts of Deuteronomy as well. So what's going on here when it's all going wrong? It seems Jeremiah's first declaration to Israel was, it doesn't have to be this way. It's written in verses 1 and 2. If you, Israel, will return, then return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will invoke blessings by him, and in him they will boast. Right till the very end, until these raiders were on their doorstep and everything was coming undone, God was looking for a reason, like any reason at all, to not judge Israel, to not hand Israel over to their just deserts. Israel should have known better than to give their allegiance to others besides God and let their culture change them by the other religions around them. And yet... We know Israel didn't give up their idols and their infidelity. They just kept on in the same thing they'd been doing for a hundred years. And we shake our heads really easily a thousand years later and say, oh, they should have known better. And clearly, like clearly, they should have known better. And yet, they couldn't see clear to change their direction. So as we were going through the book of Judges in adult discipleship class last year, we saw time and again Israel going through this cycle of sin, rebellion, judgment, 
and crying out for deliverance from God and ultimately God saving and restoring them each and every time. But as they got further and further away from sealing their commitment with God through the covenant and deeper and deeper into the surrounding culture in which they lived, their returns to God got a little less returny each time, a little less sincere. And the baseline depravity of their nation grew deeper and deeper until even the most holy, or supposed to be amongst them, had really no idea who God, Jehovah, was anymore, or what being his people really even looked like. They were too far gone. Like, they should have known better, but they were so far gone, they didn't even know how to return to God anymore. And still, God called to them to do the hard work of coming out of the mire and return to him instead. Now, when I was younger, our family went on vacations every summer and sometimes in winter, and we liked doing cave tours when we were on our vacations, seeing all these stalactites and stalagmites, these rock formations underground. And most of these caves were modernized, which is weird to talk about a modernized cave, but they'd build in stairs and handrails and electric lights so that you could actually see your way around. Now, on one tour that we went on, I remember, we went in and we were in a cave, cavern like this, and they said, we want to show you something. And they turned out the lights. And there you are, hundreds of feet underground, with no natural light. That's dark, man. Like, there's nothing. You don't see this in front of your face. It's all just black. And then they said, all right, try and find your way out. <laughs> That's not going to work. Why? Well, you're so far gone into the dark, there's no way that you're finding your own way out again, right? It's just pitch black. You're so deep into the cave, you don't even know which way was forward, back, beside, or even up, it felt like. You're in too deep to the dark to find your way out. That's dark. God was calling his people to stop trying to take the easy way back out. Jeremiah continued in verses 3 and 4 saying, This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil that you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. Now, I'm not a born and raised farmer, and I don't claim to be, but I have spent enough time on the family farm with my hands in the dirt to know that sowing seed on unplowed ground or in the middle of a pile of weeds is dumb. The seeds will either rot on the hard pan and get nowhere or get eaten by birds or choked out by the thistles. You're not getting anywhere throwing just seeds willy-nilly around on the hard dirt. But... Plowing the ground is a lot of hard work if you don't have a tractor, right? Israel didn't have tractors, in case you didn't know your history that well. Israel was on cruise control to destruction, metaphorically speaking here. They were willing to cut off some sensitive skin, if that's what God asked them to do, to do the appearance of doing what was right. But they weren't willing to do the hard work to actually change their hearts and minds and start living like they had committed to before God. Thus, the call to circumcise their hearts because their ceremonial actions didn't mean anything anymore. Destruction was literally on their doorstep in the persons of raiding armies 
when they heard the calls to change, and it looked so hard that they gave a God that, God, I just can't even. It's too much. I'm tired. And we look at it now, and we look at Israel and say, you should have known better, right? How with all these promises of calamity, with all these raiders on your doorstep, did you not see the error of your ways and be willing to do anything, like anything, to get back right and avoid it? Growing up in my house, we somewhat jokingly and somewhat seriously lived by the rule of I'm sitting. Now, for those of you who do not know what the rule of I'm sitting is, it's this. If you were asked to do something but could prove that you had just sat down, you could likely have the job handed off to somebody else who was still standing. You can laugh, but it's true. I can remember a time, my mom yelling down the stairs and saying, Ben, your friend's on the phone, go get it. And I said, I'm sitting. And she said, John, go get the phone. It worked. It was good. You just didn't want to be standing very often. And it's funny to look back on that that kind of lazy, easy road was there. But it doesn't get you very far once you're married or employed. Try and tell your boss, I'm sitting, and see where it gets you to. And saying, you can go sit somewhere else. Like, learn to do the hard, not very hard work, so that when the word is actually hard, that you have the gumption to go get it done, to do what needs to get done before it's too late. Because God is proving nothing gives security or control over life but him. Jeremiah said in verses 5 to 9, Announce in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Sound the trumpet throughout the land. Cry aloud and say, Gather together. Let us flee to the fortified cities. Raise the signal to go to Zion. Flee for safety without delay. For I am bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. A lion has come out of its lair. A destroyer of nations is set out. He's left his place to lay waste to your land. Your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitant. So put on sackcloth and lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord is not turned away from us. In that day, declares the Lord, the king and the officials will lose heart. The priests will be horrified, and the prophets will be appalled. Israel and their cities would be overrun, and the leaders that they had put their faith in to save them were absolutely bereft of ideas or abilities to do anything about it. There would be nowhere safe to run, and no one smart you could trust in to save you. Now, if you go all the way back to the sealing of the covenant back in Deuteronomy 28, you can see God told them exactly what to expect if they turned away from him. It's written in verse 16, you will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. There wasn't going to be any escape. Carried on in verse 36, saying, the Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors. The leaders that they installed as their own kings, the ones that they thought they could trust to take care of them, were just as vulnerable as they were. When they saw the troops amassing and the leaders failing, like they should have known better, right? But they were so far gone, so lost, and so overwhelmed by the immensity of the task that it would be to return to God, that they just, they like couldn't even, right? God informed them, there will be no shelter here. Nowhere is safe from the judgment of a God who's everywhere. 
And in the midst of it all, God was just being faithful to his word. The promises of disillusionment and destruction carried on in verses 10 to 15 when he said, Then I said, Alas, sovereign Lord, how completely you've deceived this people in Jerusalem by saying you'll have peace when the sword is at our throats. At that time, this people in Jerusalem will be told, A scorching wind from the barren heights in the desert blows towards my people, not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too strong for that comes from me. Now I pronounce my judgments against them. Look, he advances like the clouds. His chariots come like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, we are ruined. Jerusalem, wash the evil from your heart and be saved. How long will you harbor wicked thoughts? A voice is announcing from Dan and proclaiming disaster from the hills of Ephraim. Like... As I read this passage first time and from there, imagine the entitlement and audacity to look at God and say, how dare you do this to us? When the judgment was finally there on their doorstep. Well, last sovereign Lord, how completely you deceived this people by saying you'll have peace when the sword's at our throats. You promised you'd care for us and bring us peace as your people. And God just points back a couple hundred years to the promises they made back in Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 and 48. And he said, because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, therefore hunger and thirst in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he is destroyed. They were pretty comfortable holding God to his end of the covenant, right? That he would provide them peace and prosperity. But they either, A, didn't realize how far from following God they actually were at that point, or B, were so entitled to their place as God's people, they didn't think that anything they could do could ever change it. Or C, both. God is always faithful. God's people often aren't. How dare you let us happen to this, God? Think about your reputation, God. You promised us peace. What will the Babylonians think? Maybe you're not so powerful. How dare you? God was very much concerned with God's reputation. And dealing with Israel's evil and infidelity was part of that. Now, in Western culture, the only thing that we love more than putting people on a pedestal is telling them that now they're entitled to whatever they want. The thing we love more is kicking the pedestal out from under them and shouting, who do you think you are? My kids confirm that not much brings me more joy than some kid in a street racer car getting a speed ticket. That's one of the great loves of my life, if I'm being honest. When we're watching TV shows and movies, we love it when the arrogant guy in the room gets conned by somebody and brought down, right? We live to see the entitled brought low in our culture. Unless it's ourselves, because then that is a tragedy. God showed Israel that he was faithful to his word beyond their feelings. God was in the process of demolishing what needed to be rebuilt. Jeremiah continued on the promises of woe in verses 16 to 22, saying, Tell this to the nations and proclaim concerning Jerusalem. A besieging army is coming from a distant land. 
raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. They surround her like men guarding a field because she's rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your own conduct and actions have brought this on you. This is your punishment. How bitter it is. How it pierces to the heart. Oh, my anguish, my anguish. I writhe in pain. The agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent, for I've heard the sound of the trumpet. I've heard the battle cry. Disaster follows disaster. The whole land lies in ruins. In an instant, my tents are destroyed and my shelter in a moment. How long must I see the battle standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? My people are fools. They don't even know me. They're senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. I looked at the earth, and it was formless and empty, and at the heavens, and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains, and they were quaking, and all the hills were swaying. I looked, and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked, and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord in his fierce anger. Now, when Israel came to the promised land, they found it a lush land flowing with milk and honey, as they put it back then saying it had everything. It was the best land they could imagine. And in the very near future, it would be absolutely desolate, just like God promised in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 25. It said, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You'll come at them from one direction, but flee from them in seven. You'll be a thing of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. The once great nation would be left desolate, and the land as barren as anything as a result of their evil and unfaithfulness to God. Not just the people, but the land and everything that they had been promised would all pay the price. And worst of all, at the hands of the very people that were in their minds the unclean, ungodly people that were supposed to be the ones who were paying the price. They instead would be humiliated and desolated by their arch rivals. Now, I'm the kind of person who hates home renovations. I think they're just the worst. Having to live in the midst of chaos that should be my sanctuary. For what? But anyway, Jen loves home renovation shows and renovations in real life, so this is a thing we have going back and forth. But we redid our whole house in Swift Current when we moved there back 20 years ago. This past fall, though, I said, after saying never again, that I would bless the basement bathroom remodel and was rewarded with a broken toe and three months of misery for it. But there's also no arguing at the end of it that what we have now for a basement bathroom is far better than anything we had before, not even remotely close. Now, it took a lot of suffering, and it took a lot of destruction to get there. But that's exactly what God promised to Israel and delivered here. God is offering restoration over the illusion that they could fix it. After all these promises of doom, there's a bit of hope at the end. Starting in verses 27, it's written, this is what the Lord says, the whole land will be ruined, though I won't destroy it completely. Therefore the earth will mourn and the heavens above grow dark because I've spoken and will not relent. I've decided I won't turn back. 
At the sound of horsemen and archers, every town takes to flight. Some go into the thickets. Some climb up among the rocks. All the towns are deserted and no one lives in them. What are you doing, you devastated one? Why dress yourself in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why highlight your eyes with makeup? You adorn yourself in vain. Your lovers despise you and they want to kill you. I hear a cry of a woman in labor, a groan as one bearing her first child. The cry of daughter Zion gasping for breath and stretching out her hands and saying, Alas, I'm fainting. My life is given over to murderers. Israel's fate was sealed at this point. Judgment was coming. But it wasn't judgment intended to wipe them from the face of the earth like happened with Sodom and Gomorrah or like happened with the flood. But rather, it was an opportunity, a promise of a fresh start to come. God promised restoration when he made his covenant with them in Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's written, when all these blessings and curses I've set before you come on you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I've commanded you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from the nations that he scattered you. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live Destruction was coming for Israel. Their time of prosperity had come to an end. As Jeremiah put it, there was no amount of makeup or jewelry that would be able to cover up the ravages of age and disease here in Israel. Trying to fix it up was just an absolute naive waste of time. There's nothing worse than trying to cover up the flaws of a bad restoration job. We've all seen this one, right? It's a disaster. We've seen it, we've laughed at it, because it's such a mess that we can see nothing is repairing what was done. The best efforts to try and fix it up wound up making it far, far worse than what it ever was before. The only hope for Israel wasn't in adjustments and reforms, but in the promise of a brand new life. Mother Israel was about to pass away here, but there would be hope for a new life to come that would be born fresh. A fresh start that would grow in time to live into the promises of God's blessing of restoration. God was offering redemption. But it was Israel's choice how painful it would be in getting there. Now as I was pondering, what on earth do we do with this? Over the last couple of weeks, I, I was struggling, man. And then there I was one afternoon, screaming at the ceiling, pushing out weights on my Bowflex in the basement, as I'm apt to do. And it all hit me at once. Not the weights, thankfully, but the ideas. It's felt at times over the past decade or so that the church is in increasingly hostile territory and its detractors seem to be closing in from all sides in the Western world. 
Christians have often talked about persecution and spiritual warfare and the powers and principalities warring against the church. And this is all true. But what if the church and the current struggles it faces from the outside cultural forces aren't the work of the devil, but an impending warning from God? Like the writer of Hebrews wrote, the Lord disciplines those he loves, right? Maybe, maybe, the appropriate response in some of these situations isn't the be strong and courageous of Joshua entering the promised land to take that what God promised them. But maybe the put on sackcloth, lament, and wail of Jeremiah calling Israel to recognize their failings. What if the calls of injustice by the church in residential schools, stories of abuse at camps and Christian schools, and cultural bitterness towards the church aren't a call to gird up our loins and enter into a culture war, but rather signs of our failings and an opportunity to take stock, turn, and repent? In our own church, we have long held problems with being clicky, problems with apathy, and a long-standing habit of our kids leaving their faith as they grow up. We have acknowledged these things to ourselves in meetings. We've seen them. We've talked about them. Maybe we're just in so deep in Western culture, like Israel, that we can't even see the places that we've turned away from God because it's all we've known. What if the culture and way of life are in so deeply that the solution to the world's problems through freedom and self-expressive individualism isn't the case, but rather the source of our pain and problems instead? But we just can't see it because we're in so deep that it's all we've known. What if, like Israel, we should have known better? In his book, You Are Not Your Own, Bible professor Alan Noble takes a sharp stick and he points at the tender parts within our own culture that lead to our downfall, both for people in the church and outside of it. Our Western understandings of freedom, of boundless choice to do what we want, of individualism and self-expression that have so permeated our thoughts, ideas, ways of being, and even our theology that we don't even recognize how often and fundamentally flawed they are compared to what Jesus called us to. Every narrative in our Western culture urges us towards self-discovery by looking at in and finding ourselves within, owning who we are, and then expressing that special uniqueness to everyone around us. But the way of Jesus is listening to God as to who he says we are and humbly living out who he calls us to be, with him as a ruler over our lives, not ourselves. We are not the arbiters of our own lives as Jesus' people. The way of Jesus is not self-discovery, but communal humility, because we are not our own to determine. Rather, the people of Jesus are God's. Maybe like Israel found in their culture, there is no hope for repair, no amount of makeup or jewelry that can cover up the ravages of ages and disease, and instead our only real hope is rebirth. A new start. And Jesus already thought of that. He said to Nicodemus, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. 
You should not be surprised by my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The promises for redemption and restoration for Israel are no less God's heart for people here and now. No one is too far gone to be forgiven. If you, Israel, will return, then return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful and just and righteous way you swear, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will invoke blessings by him, and in him they will boast. We have to accept that we are not our own, but we are God's. And in living with him as our authority, not ourselves, sitting on our own thrones, is what life to the full really looks like. It's what discipleship to Jesus looks like. The continual process of turning over allegiance in our own life to every area to be formed by God rather than ourselves. Now, going into this coming ministry church year, we're going to be hosting some small town hall meetings, walking through what lifelong commitment to following Jesus looks like. What it looks like to have that forming our own lives and the life of our shared life as a church and ministry together. And I'd love for you to come and be a part of that. Meals, talking around tables, going through some material that you have asked me to put together, and discerning well together what it means, not just as individuals to follow Jesus, but how we can best live that life together for the life of our church as God's people. I'd love for you to be a part of the process of discerning what that new life looks like. No matter where we are at, the promise for redemption still stands. God is offering redemption, but it's our choice how painful it has to be in getting there. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace, love, and forgiveness. That the base of everything you do, your ministry is one of reconciliation and redemption right from the beginning. No one too far gone and nothing too dark to be able to be redeemed and turned around to follow you. Lord, we admit our failings. We admit to places that we have come up short from who you have called us to be and who you have empowered us to be. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and insight as we look at ourselves, to be able to see ourselves through the lens of your spirit and who you have called us to be as your people. We trust that your spirit is enough to empower us for every good thing, to form our hearts to be like yours, and to give us the wisdom, strength, and ability to do your ministry as your people. Spirit, give us insight. Help us to see ourselves as we are and help us to turn to be the people that you call us that we are. In Christ, loved and as your children. For we trust ourselves into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.